Church, would you please open up your Bibles to the book of Acts this morning. The book of Acts, go to chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. It turns out whenever Christmas is on Sunday, New Year's is on Sunday. And it goes that way every year, whatever day Christmas is on, that's the day that New Year's is. So not only do we get to celebrate the birth of God's Son on Sunday, the exact day, but we get to celebrate the start of a new year on Sunday. And as we celebrate a new year, it's a time of renewal, of refreshment, of recommitment, fresh starts, I want to focus our thoughts on spiritual renewal as we go into the new year. One of the primary ways that we experience spiritual renewal is through the Word of God. So here's our main idea this morning if you're taking notes. Healthy Christians thrive on a regular diet of God's Word. Healthy Christians thrive on a regular diet of God's Word. We're going to see this this morning in the book of Acts, chapter 17. We see a new beginning of sorts for people in Berea. If you are there, uh, let's stand together as we read from God's Holy Word. Just as a reminder that we are about to read the divine, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Acts chapter 17, I'll read 10 through 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you please illuminate your word in our hearts and in our minds that we might behold and understand wondrous things from your law. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So before we dive into this text, I want to back up and give you just a little bit of context. Paul is traveling around with the gospel, going from city to city, proclaiming God's word, letting people know that the Messiah is here, the Christ has come. And as he's traveling, he follows a similar pattern. He finds the Jews first. Usually you'll see in the book of Acts especially, he goes and finds a synagogue. And he goes to the synagogue and says, Okay, Jews, I have found the Messiah. His name is Jesus. And he reasons with them from the scriptures why Jesus is the Messiah. That's the first thing he usually does. If he doesn't find a synagogue... Sometimes he will go and find where he thinks that Jews gather for prayer. Sometimes there's not a synagogue, but there's especially one occasion where he thinks there's a place where they pray out by a river. So he goes out there and talks to them first. 
Next thing he does is he seeks out Gentiles, Greeks, and reasons with them as well. Sometimes they're in the synagogues, but sometimes they're not. So he will go out into the marketplace and reason with them that Jesus is the Christ. And then third, before he leaves, he establishes some form of continued gospel presence before he moves on to the next location and he repeats the process. We see here in our text this morning that the brothers sent him away after the Thessalonians came in and were stirring things up. They sent Paul off, but Silas and Timothy remained there in verse 14. So Paul uses them in this instance to set up structure so that when they leave, they at least have a way to move forward. There's some kind of foundation that's laid, and they know how to proceed in his absence. We see this pattern, this pattern play out clearly here in Acts 17. In Acts 17, Paul visits three areas. If you look in verse 1, he visits Thessalonica, down here in verse 10, Berea, and then up in verse 16, Athens, and then Athens plays out to the end of the chapter. This morning, I want to look briefly at the Thessalonians and the Bereans. We're going to leave the Athenians alone, though that is uh, really insightful in itself. We're going to look at Thessalonians and the Bereans, because each of these cities demonstrate a different type of people. If you go and look at Acts 17 later, I would challenge you to read through the account and try to note the differences and the similarities between each of these places. I think they're very intentional on purpose. And as a side note, I would argue that before in America we were kind of in a Christian context, I would argue that now we are in a post-Christian context probably a lot more like Athens here in Acts 17 than like Acts chapter 2 where Peter is preaching to the choir. But that's for another day. I want to look at Thessalonians and Bereans. In Thessalonica, if you go back to Acts chapter 17 verse 1, you'll see that they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So there's the pattern. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So we see with the Thessalonian Jews, they did not like Paul. They did not like his message. Now the Greeks received it really well. Some of the Jews believed, but it says that a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women believed. But the Jews were angry, and they riled people up, and they formed a mob, and it worked. And they got Jason, where they believed the house church was there, and pulled him out and says, where are these men? 
and they took money from Jason as security. It's basically like the mob. But in Berea, Paul encounters a different type of people. Luke, he wrote the book of Acts, makes it clear as we look into our passage today that he wants us to contrast those in Berea with those in Thessalonica. If you look in verse 11, it says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. So while the Thessalonians were wicked and jealous men, Verse 11 describes the men of Berea as being more noble. So the question I want to answer this morning is what made the Bereans more noble? What is it that sets them apart over and against the Thessalonians? Paul's pattern in both places is the same. He goes into the city, he goes to the synagogue, he reasons with the Jews from the scriptures. Think of this as the foundation of Paul's ministry. He goes into a new place, it's a fresh start, so the first thing he does is he takes the word of God and exposes it for the people, just like we do here on Sunday mornings. As we enter into a new year, that should be the foundation that we lay here at this church and in our, in our personal spiritual lives. The word of God ought to be the central driving force in everything that we say and do, because we're disciples of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is to say, I am a student, and Jesus is the teacher. So we must submit ourselves to the Word of God. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and demonstrates the power of God through it as the Son of God is exalted from it. This is what makes for healthy Christians. Now, this is the foundation of a healthy Christian and a healthy church, but it's not the only foundation of a healthy church or a healthy Christian. There's another factor that we see in this passage. And the reason that I know this is because in Thessalonica, it says that some of them, in verse 4, Acts 17, verse 4, some of them were persuaded. And another significant difference, if you back up a few verses, in verse 2, Paul goes in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned from the Scriptures. Now if we go forward to Berea, and we look and see what happened there, these Jews, in verse 11, were more noble. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So the same thing is happening, but a different result is being brought about. The same foundation is being laid, but in one place, some are believing, and they're coming just on the Sabbath, they're doing their due diligence, and then they leave. In the other place, they are examining the Scriptures daily. Hey, will you come back and talk to us more about this tomorrow? We need to look into this first. He comes back, they listen again, they examine the scriptures, and many are believing. So what's the difference between the two? This morning, I want to give you four healthy attitudes that I see here in the Bereans in our approaching the word of God. Here's the first one we see. Expect to receive from the word of God. Expect to receive from the Word of God. When you approach the Bible, you need to come in a posture of expectation to receive something from it as you read. 
on Sunday mornings as you come in to sit in the sanctuary. The Word of God is going to be sang, and it's going to be prayed, and it's going to be proclaimed. So you should be expecting to receive something from it. The attitude should never be, this was really enjoyable for me, but not for me. There is always something for us from the Word of God. It should be enjoyable, absolutely, but it's enjoyable with a purpose. It is a tool, Hebrews chapter 4 describes it as a, like a sort of scalpel, it's a sword that pierces our hearts, and it's like a surgeon doing work and cutting into us for our good. That's the purpose of this book. It's not merely for enjoyment. So we should expect to receive. That's what we see here with the Bereans. Our focus verse this morning in this passage is going to be verse 11. It says the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And then Luke tells us what it is that made them more noble here. He says they received the word. Just because a word is being shared does not mean that the word is being received. And every wife in the church said, Amen. Just because a word is being shared does not mean that the word is being received. Receiving implies a proper posture. We were over at family's house yesterday doing our Christmas thing at my mom's house, at my aunt's house, and they had sports on the television, and so of course we're doing the gift exchange, and almost every guy in the room, their face was like this towards the TV, and all the ladies are talking and enjoying, we're all in a circle, and so a play would happen, and they would, oh, did you see that, and show a replay, and it's interesting watching the abilities of these athletes, they have perfected their craft, they are the strongest, fastest men who can do these things in our country, and they compete with one another, and I've caught myself watching as they're moving and thinking and their agility, and specifically their form. They do things, whenever I do those same sorts of things, if I go and play basketball recreationally, in my mind, I look like one of those players. <laughs> but then when you take a video and you go back and watch it, you're like, <laughs> I look like that. <laughs> We don't have the right posture like they do to be able to pass the way that they do, to be able to shoot the way that they do. Our children, when they play softball, the first thing they do before they play a game, they go out in the field and they warm up. Usually they're throwing the softball or baseball back and forth. You know what I don't see? They go out and the ball is thrown and they're standing like this waiting for the ball to hit them in the chest and just fall in their glove. If they want to receive the ball, where's the glove got to be? It's got to be up here. The ball's coming at you. You need to be in a position to receive it. But sometimes this is how we approach the Word of God. We think that the Word of God is just going to impact us via osmosis. If it is just heralded towards me and I'm just present, it will just hit me and do its work. But there is a posture within us to receive the Word of God. I would argue that posture is expectation. I'm expecting to receive. I'm coming ready to listen because I know that God has something for me for my good in the word this morning. Now I'm going to take it a step further. We need to be in a daily posture to receive from the word of God. It's not enough to be on a Sunday morning posture. 
I'm in a habit on Sunday mornings to receive, then every other day of the week, okay, now I can recoup from having to receive the word of God on Sunday morning. It should be the other way around. It should be, I am receiving the word of God every day of the week, and then Sunday morning is like dessert. I get to come together with other brothers and sisters who have been feasting on God's word all week, and now we can enjoy together the public proclamation and singing of God's word. Sometimes we don't enjoy that as much on Sunday morning because we've made dessert our only meal of the week. That does not make for healthy Christians, and it does not make for healthy churches. It is so easy to come before God's word not expecting to receive, and many times we don't even realize we're doing it. I'm going to give an illustration from my personal life. It's embarrassing, but those make for the best illustrations. When I just started going to church, I was, I was older than 16 because I had a car at this point. I think I was 17 probably. And we had a new youth minister at our church. I barely even knew what a youth minister was, but there was a guy, he came, and he was an adult, and he acted like a kid, and he taught us the Bible. That was kind of my knowledge of that. And so ours left, and we had a new one come in. And our old youth minister was the only one I'd ever known, so I was not in a good place. I was very upset that he had to leave. I didn't think it was fair. I was not happy. Well, I was dating this girl, and she is about to break up with me. I don't realize that at the moment, but she is. She's about to break up with me. And in our conversation, one of the things that she gave me leading up to her saying that we should not date anymore, she was talking about church and just my spiritual life in general. Praise God that this young woman said, this is important to me, and this is worthy of dividing over. It is worthy of dividing over if they don't love Jesus. Okay? So, she sits down and she says, you know, this, this, and this. And I remember saying something like this. I just don't like this new youth guy. I don't feel like I'm getting anything on Wednesday nights. That's when their teaching time was, was Wednesday nights. I don't feel like I'm getting anything and I will never forget what she told me, because I hated it in the moment. She said, well, I'm getting something. If God's word is being taught, and you're not getting something, it might be that you're not getting something because you come in thinking you're not going to get anything. You come in knowing off the bat, I don't even know why I'm coming, I'm not going to get anything. And she said, I think that's why. Now, in my flesh, I'm like, <laughs> like well, what else can you say to that? You know, I, I, I didn't agree with her. I thought, I argued, and I was like, well, I mean, no, but what, what I'm trying to say is, and I rephrased it, and actually it wasn't for months until I acknowledged that she was right. It was months that went by. It wasn't days or weeks. It was months. I'll never forget the words because they were right. And it took so long for the Lord to just constantly pound my heart to get that truth through. But eventually, he did. And it was an act of grace. I was coming on Wednesday nights thinking, I don't even like this guy. He's not like the last guy. I don't even know why I'm here. And that's why I wasn't receiving. And I've never forgotten those words. I wasn't receiving because I wasn't expecting to receive. Do you read the Bible expecting to receive from the Lord? Number two, second attitude, eagerly desire the word of God. 
eagerly desire the word of God. The written word is notorious for its difficulty in conveying emotion. The easiest place to see this is via text message. For those of you that are very sarcastic, I am sure that you have sent a text message before thinking, oh, it'll come across perfect. They know I'm being sarcastic. And then it turns out the person on the receiving end did not understand your sarcasm. And they thought it was offensive. And before you know it, you're going back and forth on a text message. Well, no, I was trying. No, and then you just call them. Look, I was, it was a joke. Like, this is what I was trying to say. Text has a hard time communicating emotion. This is why we pay good authors to write books that we enjoy to read. They've mastered the ability to do something that a lot of us have a hard time with. They can convey and pack emotion into words. And you read it and you think, this is amazing. I can't put the book down. I want to reread this statement in Acts 17.11, and I want you to try to imagine what the Bereans are feeling as I read Luke's description. Try to suck the emotion out of this passage in verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. That phrase, all eagerness, is so easy to read over, and it's so easy to read over, I did it at least a dozen times as I was looking over and thinking about this passage. But when you stop and ask, what does this really mean, the emotion behind it almost slaps you across the face. We are at the perfect time of the year to understand what this phrase means. Christmas was a week ago. Do you want to know what eager expectation looks like? Wrap a bunch of presents and put it under a tree and tell your kids, it's time to open presents. That's it. We did Christmas with ours, and Gabriel had this thing that he'd really been wanting. He saved up money for probably a year, close to a year, for this ultimate Hot Wheels garage. He was about to let everybody know what it was. For this ultimate Hot Wheels garage. I'm proud of my son for saving up money for that long. That's impressive. So he saved up his money, and he didn't know me and Stacy are going to get him this gift for Christmas. And then he can take that hard-earned money and spend it on whatever he wants. Or he can continue saving it if he wants to. But we knew the Hot Wheels garage is not like this. It's a toy. Toy companies want to make money. So they make it like this. So that you have to spend all this money on it. Okay? So the box... I mean, it's easily as wide as the pulpit, okay? Maybe not quite. It's, it's pretty close. And so when we wrap it and put it under the tree, he's going to know what it is. So did we put it under the tree? Nope. We hid it. And then when it was time to open presents, I went to where we had hid the present, and I pulled it out there in the living room, and I pull it out, and I'm, as soon as I get it in the living room, Gabriel jumps up and goes, it's a hot wheels garage. He knew. He didn't have to open the present. He saw this big box and he ran over and he was like ripping the paper off of it and it's flying everywhere and he pulled it open and he looked at it and you could just see on his face and I'm like, this is the best gift I will receive for Christmas is looking at my son's face as he opens this gift. You know what that is? All eagerness. He's eager to open it because he knows that something good is on the inside. And it really helps that he knows what it is. So we get to the next gifts, and he opens it up. He doesn't know what they are, but that one is so awesome. Well, what's this one going to be? 
This is what it looks like to approach the Word of God with all eagerness. In the mornings when I approach this, in the evenings, at night, when I'm on my break at work, when I approach this, I may not know what I'm going to get from the Word, but I know it's going to be good. I know it's going to be good. So I am approaching it in all eagerness. I'm expecting to receive something. What's it going to be this time? Oh, I've read this one before. Oh, well. No. This is a never-ending fountain. I can't tell you how many times I've read this passage of the Bereans because it's such a famous passage. I've heard it preached on countless times. You listen to podcasts. You read books. They talk about the Bereans. I know about the Bereans. I'm preparing this passage thinking, I know what's in here. And I'm coming to I'm like, how did I never notice all eagerness? There's always something more from God's Word. We need to expect that. The thing about eager desire for God's Word is that it cannot be manufactured or created within us by us. We don't manufacture that. My brother loves sushi. Any sushi? People in here, yeah, don't be ashamed. Hold it. I love sushi, okay? I used to be one of those that was like, uh, sushi, raw fish, but and I'd never tried it. And I've always said, like, okay, I'll try it once, and then I'll say I don't like it. <laughs> so I said, oh, I'll try it once, and I'm like, I actually don't want to like sushi. How many of you have never tried it, but you don't want to like sushi? You don't even want to try it once. It's okay, I was there. Yes, okay. So that's where I was. My brother said, look, he worked at a sushi restaurant. He said, you're gonna try a bite of this. I was like, okay. He goes, just trust me, okay? Nothing wrong in this one. We're gonna start you on the training wheels. Nothing raw, so try this. It was really good. <laughs> it was really good. I was like, oh man. Okay, well that's the only sushi I'm going to like. Well, I didn't know how wrong I was. Turns out I like a lot more than just that type of sushi. And so I tasted it. I, I didn't want that desire. I didn't want that. As soon as it hit my tongue, it's like a spark. As soon as God's word hits us, it's like a spark on our taste buds. The Holy Spirit takes these words within us. That's why I pray every Sunday morning, Holy Spirit, illuminate your word in my heart and in my mind, because it's only the Spirit of God that will magnify your affections for the word of God. There's no shortcut around it. A lot of times we try to make ourselves desire something, but we cannot do that. We cannot manufacture this desire and hunger and thirst for the things of God. If you find that you don't have the taste buds for it, it's likely because you have not asked God for it. In James chapter 4 verse 2, he says you do not have because you do not ask. He's talking about these warring desires within people, but I think the same principle applies when it comes to a desire for God's word. Why don't you have it? Because you do not ask for it. God will only grant an eager desire for his word to those who humbly ask for it because if we could attain it any other way, we would. And then who would get the credit for it? Me. 
I can't take credit for a desire for the Bible. I used to hate this book. I would never verbalize that, but I can remember in those rebellious days when I'm 16 or 17 years old, sitting listening to the preacher and thinking, this has got to be the worst job anyone could ever have. This guy spends 40 hours a week in his office preparing for Sunday morning so that he can preach for 30 minutes to an hour on a book that's just boring. That's got to be the worst job ever. The Lord really has a sense of humor, doesn't he? I can't get enough. And I, I don't, now I get what I didn't get then. God manufactures this desire within us for his word. And he does it when we ask. If you don't desire this book, but you desire desiring the book, ask for it. He will give it to you. He is faithful. So not only do we approach God expecting to receive, but we approach God asking him to give us a hunger that can only be satisfied by his word. Number three, examine carefully the word of God. Examine carefully the word of God. Look back at verse 11. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures. Now this word examining is interesting. We don't have the Greek words in front of us. We have the English words, which means someone else who knows Greek looked at the Greek words and said, okay, best English word to use here is examining. But the problem is that sometimes the same Greek word is not translated as the same English word every single time because words kind of take on different meaning when they're next to other words. Our language does this. Every language does this. So when I see the word examining, in my mind I'm thinking, okay, but is that what the actual text actually said or is that just the closest equivalent? So I went and looked. They could have used the word read the scriptures daily. They didn't. Because the word in the Greek is not the word for read. There's a difference between reading and examining. The Greek word here is the same base that we use in the word hypocrite. Or to judge. Or investigate. It's the idea of becoming hypersensitive in your analysis of something. To a critical degree. Other ways of translating the word would be to question, to interrogate, to investigate. It's like we're looking through a magnifying glass in order to inspect something and we're hoping to find something and we're looking at all the little details so that we can find what we're missing. This level of examination goes far beyond merely reading. One of the reasons we're so slow to grow in our faith sometimes is because we've become relaxed in our daily devotions. Why do you think McDonald's makes so much money and has so many restaurants around the world? Because they've made it easy and relatively cheap to get a meal where I don't have to go into my kitchen and cook something. Now, I'm not personally a fan of McDonald's, but obviously they're doing well for themselves. Because anytime you go on a road trip, you just look for those golden arches. You find them everywhere. It's easy. It's convenient. So we opt for that out of the ease and convenience that it provides. And I think it's the same with our time with the Lord, our daily devotions, our spiritual disciplines. Some of us have become too relaxed because other resources have made it easy for us. 
We're content with a short one-paragraph devotion based on one verse of Scripture and saying, okay, I'm done for the day. In three minutes, I can be out the door to work. I would rather you be in it for three minutes than no minutes. But there is so much more to be had in God's Word. For some of us, we've never been shown a better way. For some of us, we've simply become lazy. The scriptures are not designed just to be casually glimpsed at. They're designed to be studied and deeply examined. These are the words of an infinitely wise, all-knowing, intelligent creator. How is it that we expect to be able to just gaze at it for a moment and say, well, I get the full bet for that passage, done. That's not going to happen. It needs to be studied. Now, don't hear me wrong here. Your ability to receive from the Word of God is not dependent upon your skill in studying it. Does that make sense? So it's not that those who are the best studiers of God's Word will receive the most from God's Word. God is far too intelligent for that. He has designed it in cooperation with His Holy Spirit so that whatever my ability of study is, I can extract exactly what He wants me to extract every single time. But that doesn't excuse our lack of study. It doesn't excuse me coming to the text and saying, okay, I want to consume what's happening here in Acts 17. Okay, he visits three different cities. Great. Do I have a map of this place? Oh, someone got me one for Christmas. Wonderful. Open it up. Oh, here's what it, I see now why he went from this place to this place to this place. That's excellent. Okay, what are, we're studying the scriptures. I don't want to put a time on this because then that will become the new standard. Oh, well, Brother Garrett said it has to be 12 minutes, or it has to be 7 minutes, or it has to be 25 minutes. That's not the point. The point is, I'm coming to the text more than just kind of cursory. I'm looking and trying as deeply as I can to understand and plumb the depths of what I'm reading. That's what it is to examine the text. I want to suggest to you this morning that we will only ever do that if we are expecting to receive and eagerly desiring. You have to expect to receive and you have to eagerly desire if you want to have this level of study with the text. Imagine losing a precious ring in a football field. This happened once. We had a Fields of Faith out of, um, I don't know if y'all do the Fields of Faith here. I know they did in DeRitter. Okay, so there's a thing that the schools did, and they said all the local churches come to the football field. We're going to have youth on Wednesday night all together as one body of Christ, and they call it Fields of Faith, okay? And so we had Fields of Faith, and a girl came up, and she said, I lost my ring. Okay, where at? She pointed out to the football field. I'm like, uh, where, where were you sitting? I don't remember. Well, can you give me like a gauge, uh, you know, between this yard line and this yard line? Well, it was like somewhere like over here. It was a huge area. I'm like, oh my goodness. So the first thing I do, I'll tell you what I did not do first. I did not go out, and it's nighttime. I did not go out and get on my hands and knees and start crawling around looking at every square inch of grass. It was a huge area to cover. That's not what I'm going to do first. The first thing I'm going to do is walk up like this and generally gaze and see if anything catches my eye. And if I see a little glimmer of something or I see something looks like an off color, what do I do next? 
This might be it. Now I get down close and I examine and start weeding through the grass a little bit at a time. That, ex that expectation to find something there, that excitement that I might not have to search out here for a half hour, it, it, it enlivened me to get down and to examine and then to extract it. And it's the same thing with us approaching the Word of God. We must expect to receive and eagerly desire for our examination to be maximized. Number four. Engage daily the Word of God. Engage daily the Word of God. Back at verse 11. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Paul reasoned in the synagogues on the Sabbath, but if people wanted to hear more, he could go back as often as they wanted to hear more. We've done this sort of thing before in revivals. Someone comes, and you come back every single day. There's an expectation that that person's going to be there. The eager, expecting Bereans weren't content like the Thessalonians with a one-day-a-week examination. Every single day they came back to hear more. Think about the weight of this word when it comes to your Bible reading. Daily. Day by day. Every day. How many of you, like me, are struggling to maintain eye contact? Break the line of sight. Right? Daily. There aren't a lot of things that we do daily. Our daily slots are usually reserved for the most important things. Eating food, sleep, hygiene, employment, coffee. Those things deserve a daily slot. If we do it daily, it's usually not by accident. It's intentional. It's on purpose. There's a significant problem when it comes to our own daily time in the Bible. Few of us are perfect when it comes to examining the Scriptures daily. And far too many of us are okay with that. No one is going to be perfect. Now, you might perfectly adhere to a daily reading plan. That is fantastic. That should be the goal. When you fall short, and chances are it will happen, is it okay, or does it bother you? Far too many of us, it's okay. That's the danger. The danger is when you think, I don't really need it every day. I know the gospel. I've read through the Bible before. I've already read all the passages in the Bible. It's okay. It is not okay. This is life for us. Just as your body is designed to live by breathing, we spiritually are designed to live by the living word. And he reveals himself in the written word. We need this daily. We need reminders of the gospel daily. I need reminders that I'm not all that I think I am daily. So that I might depend on God more. I need reminders that my strength comes from him daily. So that I might pursue him. I need reminders daily of what I ought not to do. Because my flesh is prone to wander. I need that daily. Is the word of God truly your daily bread, sweeter than honey on your lips? 
the more satisfied you are with the word of God, the more dissatisfied you will be when you're without it. And the more dissatisfied you are without it, the more likely you will be in it on a regular basis. So it is all linked together. There is an eager desire that causes us to come to the word expecting to receive, and we examine to that end, and we do it daily. That is this more noble character of the Bereans. At the beginning of each year, we set goals called New Year's resolutions. This is a wonderful idea. Goals help motivate us to achieve what we might not otherwise achieve. If we are the type of person to work out, I don't know why you would want to do that, obviously, if you can't tell by me, but you decide you want to do that, usually you say, okay, I want to be able to bench press this amount of weight by this time. I want to be able to jog this distance in this time. We set a goal. That's good. However, in setting goals, one important thing that we have to remember is that the wrong goal can actually be demoralizing. If we set the wrong goal too far ahead, too lofty of a goal, we start to come up short and we get discouraged, and what do we do? We quit. We stop. Like, I'll try again next time. <laughs> I, got, I got countless more years to go. Then the next year comes, and the next year comes, and the next year comes. And before you know it, you don't have that many more years. We just stop. This happens with our Bible reading, too. One popular goal to set is reading through the entire Bible in a year. It comes out to between three and four chapters a day, which is very manageable. I highly recommend it. But here's the danger with this goal. If you miss a day, it is packed. Every day of the year, you got that three and a half chapter read. If you miss a day, well now your next day's reading, if you want to make your goal, it's seven chapters. It's doubled. You think, okay, I got to do this. Well, then you go away for a weekend. You forget about reading the Bible. You're wrapped up with things or whatever. You get back on at the end of the weekend on Monday, and you think, okay, I've missed three days. Oh, my goodness. Well, I don't have time to do all that catching up today. I'll do it this weekend. So you maintain one day, and then you get to that weekend, and then an emergency comes up, a pipe burst. Oh, my goodness, and you're doing this. And before you know it, you're like 20 days behind. You're a third of the way through the year, and you're thinking, um, oh, maybe I can do this. And before you know it, you quit. That's why so many of us have probably read Genesis 20 more times than we've read Ecclesiastes or Nahum. You know it's true. That's true of me. <laughs> right? If you're going to read through the Bible in a year, it might be wise to build in some bonus days so that you don't have to double up on your reading. But I think I have a better goal for us. Instead of the goal being read the Bible every year, make your goal read the Bible every day. I would much rather you read the Bible every day this year and you didn't make it through the whole Bible than for you to be able to say, well, I made it through the whole Bible in a year. Now, I had to take two or three days a month to read a whole book of the Bible, but I got it. I would much rather you read the Bible every day, five minutes a day. Well, I didn't make it through the whole, the whole Bible preacher, but I made it through about half of it or two-thirds. Wonderful. Finish it up this next year. Terrific. Be in the Bible every day. Why all this emphasis on the Word of God? 
Because it's through the written word that we come to know the living word, Jesus. As we come to the Bible, Jesus is speaking to us through these pages. That's why on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is talking with these disciples. And he's reasoning with them from the scriptures, revealing himself to them. It happens through these pages. Through these pages, Jesus exposes our sin, and he reminds us of our need for him, and he's teaching us to be like him. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that the scriptures make us wise for salvation, and that they make us complete, equipping us with everything we need for every good work. If you want to get to know Jesus better this year, you start by eagerly approaching the Bible every single day. Expect to receive and examine it accordingly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for what you have taught us this morning through it. We thank you for generously giving to us that we might receive and be built up in the most holy faith. We ask for your continued blessing in the remainder of our service as we respond to what we've heard. In Jesus' name, amen.